This week, the Comics Guys explain the history of Marvel, Part 4. Explain this! Hey, welcome back. Uh, when we last left off, uh, we had just had Marvel bought out by a ruthless businessman, uh, who then promptly left, uh, leaving us with another ruthless businessman. <laughs> well, uh... Uh, Darren, where do we uh, where do we go from here? Right. So we're now un we're under the management of Cadence Industries. Uh, Cadence Industries is run by Sheldon Feinberg, who everybody hates, and he hates everybody back double. Uh, but uh, for what it's worth, he has decided that Stanley is his guy. Right. He has uh, you know officially made Stanley the publisher and president of Marvel Comics a position that hadn't even really existed before. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of like turns, realized that, you know, like Stan is the face of this company. Uh, Marvel is modestly financially successful at this point, is putting out a, you know, a bunch of stuff, uh, is at a, you know, creative high point, and that Stan should be, you know, out promoting the comics and, you know, continuing to promote the idea of Marvel more than he's more valuable doing that than he is doing any particular writing anymore. Um, and so by 1969 or so, Stan is down to only doing two comics a month, right? The last two that are on his schedule that he has not wanted to give up are the Fantastic Four and Amazing Spider-Man. And he's doing the Fantastic Four still with Kirby. And Amazing Spider-Man uh, is now actually being done by um, John Romita because Steve Ditko has had enough of Stan and basically, uh, you know, sailed out of Marvel Comics in a snit uh, to go work for first for Charlton and then a couple of other companies uh, and would not return uh, to Marvel for many years. Um, he, you know, believes that Stan is the uh, source of many of his individual problems and just does not want anything to do with them anymore. So Ramita has taken over Spider-Man and obviously Spider-Man now looks and, you know, acts very differently, right? Like um, the with Ramita kind of like in charge, Peter Parker becomes much less nerdy looking. He becomes actually kind of handsome. He becomes successful with girls. He has like Gwen Stacy and, uh, you know, Mary Jane kicking around in there, right? I mean, he's he's suddenly like turning into uh, a functioning, reasonable grown up and much less the kind of character that Stan and Steve had started with. Uh, yeah. So, you know, that's kind of like a new look. Now there's a whole new generation of quote unquote bullpen people coming in to work at this time. Right, Stan and and uh, Roy in particular, Roy acting kind of as, as his assistant. Roy is writing two or three titles a month himself, and also kind of like handling the office uh, for Stan and bringing in people. So he's bringing in veterans like Gil Kane, for example, who had been one of the big DC guys for years, uh, has come over to Marvel, and he's bringing in new people. He brings in Neil Adams, he brings in Barry Windsor Smith, uh, Herb Trimpey, uh, Sal Basima. John's younger brother, right? Like he's, they've, they've put together a pretty strong collection of, uh, of artists uh, to work with the, you know, still pretty small number of writers. In 1969, uh, Stan, once again, now kind of like in charge of this side of it and no longer having to deal with going through Martin Goodman to get things done business-wise, Marvel cuts itself off from independent as a publisher, as a distributor. Right, we no longer have any kind of like monthly cap at all. Uh, we are now working with a new company called Curtis Circulation, uh, which you know is another magazine distributor that has kind of like come into existence in the '60s. They weren't available 
you know, to go to back in the early days uh, when, when they started all of this mess. But now Curtis Circulation uh, is handling getting Marvel Comics out to all of the retail locations that it's going to. And this is, again, before there are comic shops or anything. So we're talking about getting them into grocery stores and drug stores and, uh, you know, all the various places that, like, you know, comic books were sold on the shelves at bookstores, that kind of thing. Um, and so with this freedom, Marvel can now publish as many comics as they want, right? So they are willing to try a great many more wacky things. Uh, they try a couple of uh, horror comics, even though we have not yet had the, the code change, so they can't actually do you know vampires or werewolves or zombies or anything. But they do create a horror title like uh, Tower of Shadows. Uh, comes out at that point, which is really kind of mild for a horror comic. Uh, they bring back a couple of romance titles. Millie the Model gets a new series, right? To uh, you know, to 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 try out. Um, and then they're also trying some new weird stuff with the supers. Uh, they have uh, Guardians of the Galaxy first appears as the as a, a series, right? The original group of them set in the future. Um, Captain America gets a new African American sidekick, right? Like Black Panther is the first black superhero, uh, but uh, the Falcon uh, is actually now co-starring in a comic with Captain America in 1969. Over the course of 69 and 70, Jack uh, is increasingly unhappy with the amount of money that he's getting. He sees how much money Stan is now making from his uh, publisher job uh, and all of the you know press that Stan is kind of generating for himself. And he is of the opinion that he should be doing better. And when he is handed uh, his contract in 1970, uh, like another two-year contract, he is extremely unhappy with the details of it. And if you go check out our Jack Kirby uh, episode, uh, you can get considerably more detail about this. But basically, Jack is extremely unhappy with this and quits and heads yep. over to DC. And it's a big deal when he does, to the extent that there is any kind of press about comic books, Jack Kirby leaving DC, uh, I mean, leaving Marvel and going to DC is huge news, right? The you know Time Magazine and the New York Times, you know, like do pieces on this, um, and so Kirby wow. will go over where he will, you know, be heralded, you know, as like you know the king is at DC basically, and he will go on there to create you know the fourth world and everything else that he does there, um, and that really kind of like marks an end. You know, at that point, there is nobody, almost nobody left from the very earliest days of, uh, of Marvel, just kind of the staffers, right? Like, I mean, Flo is still there. Uh, Saul Brodsky is still there. But most of the creative side of that, uh, the, the early days of it are gone. Um, in 1970, uh, the fall of 1970, Roy works out a deal with the Robert E. Howard estate to do Conan. Roy is an enormous fan of Conan personally and has always wanted to work on Conan as a, as a character. And he gets Marvel's, uh, you know, he gets permission from Stan to basically go out and like license Conan from Robert E. Howard. Turned out to be surprisingly cheap, uh, especially compared to what Marvel would make off of Conan over the next few years. So pretty much everybody is happy with this. Barry Windsor Smith does some amazing art. Roy gets to write the character that he wanted. Marvel makes money compared to the amount that they were spending on the, on, on the license for it, they're completely delighted with this. Um, 1971, they start bringing in more, like, more stunt writers, right? Like more guest writers. Harlan Ellison writes his first Marvel script in 1971. Um, 
1971 is also when Stan Lee does the Spider-Man drug story. And if you check out our Comics Code episode, uh, you will get considerably more information about that. Uh, but that basically will force uh, the Comics Code to change uh, its write-ups, right? To, 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 to get rewritten for the first time since the 50s. And in doing so, will not only give them freedom to do more kind of like adult topics, uh, like, you know, stories about drug use and that sort of thing, will also give them freedom to do more horror stuff, right? And when the comics code gets changed and like the the forbidden, you know, the 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 non-allowance of, of vampire titles or werewolf titles or zombie titles uh, like goes away when that's free again, Marvel will explode with a series of classic horror stuff. Between 72 and 73, they do Tomb of Dracula. They do Werewolf by Night. They do Man-Thing. They do Ghost Rider. All of these characters that would not have been allowed to uh, be published under the original version of the code before Stan fought it. In this time, you also have uh, Roy Thomas is doing the Kree Scroll Wars uh, the, in Avengers, probably the longest uh, serial story told to that point in comics as it covers almost two years of, uh, of titles uh, to, to uh, tell the complete story of the Kree Scroll War. Uh, the Defenders is created as a series. Marvel Team-Up is created as a series. Luke Cage Power Man is created as a series, right? There's, they're still tremendously creative. There's a lot of great stuff coming out of Marvel at that point, and there's new people are coming in. Uh, Jerry Conway uh, gets his first writing stuff at 19 in 1972. Uh, writing for them. So the summer of 72, Stan Lee gives up his last couple of titles, his last two writing titles, Fantastic Four and Amazing Spider-Man. He just doesn't have time to write them anymore. He becomes publisher full-time, gives up the editing job. He had the title at the time of being uh, you know, editor-in-chief as well as president. Um, and he hands that over to Roy, um, who was kind of like the obvious choice. Uh, Roy used to he had an apartment in Greenwich Village where he used to host on the first Friday of every month an, an industry party in his apartment uh, where he would bring people from the comics business, whether they were from Marvel or DC or new indie people or whatever it was, would go to Roy Thomas's house and just have a party on the first Friday of every night of every month. Um, and that was a big place that Marvel was recruiting, right? That's where Roy first met, meets uh, Steve Gerber, uh, Jim Starlin. Marv Wolfman, Len Wein, Steve Englehart, right? Like some of the great writers of the, of the 70s, people who would be very important for Marvel uh, going forward. Basically, our Roy Thomas meets them at these parties and brings them on board as the new editor-in-chief. Um, however, they don't make Roy the president, right? The president, Feinberg, puts in his own guy to replace Lee as president. With Leah is now off doing a lot of promotional stuff. He's speaking on college campuses. He's in Los Angeles a lot of the time, you know, glad handing people and trying to get movies made and that kind of thing. Um, so uh, Stanley Feinberg puts Al Landau in charge as the president. Everybody hates Al Landau, right? As much as they hate Feinberg, they hate Al Landau double. He's <laughs> very difficult to get along with. Um, his job is to be kind of like the meanie, right? Like his job is to be the guy who says no to things so that, the, you know, Roy does not spend too much money and they don't get too carried away in the office with all these kids, right? Like, I mean, as far as Feinberg is concerned, the Marvel offices at this point are a bunch of 20-year-old hippies, <laughs> right? There is, shall we say, some illicit substances being used. There's some drinking, there's some partying. There's a bunch of really creative people 
in the early 70s, you know, hanging out in this office. And Feinberg doesn't trust any of them with money, right? Like they're all dirty hippies as far as he's concerned. So he brings Al Landau in to be the boss over these guys. And of course, he's miserable. Um, Landau, as it turns out, is very good at being mean and terrible at running a business. He's actually no better at like making money than any of the you know hippies that Feinberg was so scared of. Uh, <laughs> so he is fired in 1976 at a time that like sales are starting to drop off, right? Like sales across the industry start to kind of like suffer in the 70s and the, the later days of the Vietnam War and you know uh, Nixon and Watergate and all of the you know stuff that's going on there. Just generally, the economy is not doing that great. And so Feinberg cans Al Landau and replaces him with a guy named Jim Galton. And Jim Galton, to by all accounts, is a perfectly nice guy, um, kind of famously doesn't know anything about comics, and he's not terribly interested in learning. That's not what he thinks he's here for, right? He's here to make money in a business. And his idea for Marvel is, you know what, comics, sure, they're fine. That's for kids stuff and everything. They're still only, you know, 25 or 30 cents a, a shot, right? They're, this will never be a big business. What we should get into is animation. What we should get into is children's books. What we should get into is like, you know, real businesses that have a chance to actually really make money. And all of this IP that Marvel has, theoretically, we should be making movies. We should be making cartoons. We should be doing all, you know, more of this stuff should happen. He's not wrong, really, as, as Marvel will prove later, but he's completely at the wrong time, right? Like nobody is doing any of that with right. intellectual properties for anything. So he completely fails in his efforts to do that. So, you know, that's going to be a problem going forward. Um, Marvel itself at this point with Roy in charge, Roy is, you know, he's pretty easy to get along with. Uh, and the senior writers working for him get used to a certain amount of freedom, right? Like Roy is giving them, uh, you know, pretty much space to do whatever they want. Jim Starlin is writing these absolutely insane, nutty Adam Warlock stories, right? Don McGregor is writing, you know, the Black Panther fighting the Klan and stuff. Some of these just most amazing comic books of the 70s. Um, Wolverine is introduced as a character. The Punisher is introduced as a character. Uh, Gene Conway kills off Gwen Stacy in Spider-Man, right? Like there, there's a freedom to do pretty much whatever you think is, 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 uh, uh, is, is most creative. Um, and it's creating a lot of good stuff, but it also means nobody's really riding herd on these guys, right? A lot of comics are coming in late. A lot of stuff is not done on time. A lot of titles don't ship when they're supposed to. Uh, there's a lot of fill-in stories that need to be done because Steve Englehart didn't finish his Avengers thing in time. So we have to put in an interruption story in the middle of an ongoing story to give Steve another month to catch up right? It's happening to a bunch of their titles, and it's definitely making Marvel look unprofessional. It looks creatively tremendous, but people aren't really trusting that a comic is going to come out on time anymore. Roy has been taking a lot of crap for this and finally says, you know what? I'm a writer. I only took over as editor because Stan asked me to. I've put in my years doing this. I, you know, I've been here three years as the editor-in-chief. I quit. I'm just going back to being a, to being a freelancer. Um, and they don't really have anybody to replace him, right? Like he never had an assistant like he was to Stan. So over the course of the next four years, between late 1974 and 1978, Marvel will plow through four different guys as editor-in-chief. They're all terrible at their job. 
right? They're <laughs> all great writers uh, of comics. They all understand the business of being an editor. They are all terrible at getting other writers to work. <laughs> right? They're all terrible at getting people to turn things in on time. They're all friends with each other. None of them wants to yell at each other. None of them wants to be the bad guy. Right? So Len Wein is president for a little, is, is editor in chief for a little bit. He's followed by Marv Wolfman. He's followed by Gene Conway within like a few months. Len Wein actually gets fired for taking a swing at Landau, at Al Landau. <laughs> there was, in fact, when uh, Superman versus Spider Man crossover was happening was a thing that they were doing with DC and Landau did that deal with DC and Gates told DC they would have their artist do the art for it. They would have Ross Andrew do the art for it, which took Andrew off of the regular Spider-Man comic for a few months, right? Like he was the guy who was drawing amazing Spider-Man every month and Landau never told uh, Len Wein that he was doing that. Right, that I'm just taking Ross Andrew off the job for a couple of months while he does this special thing. Right. And so, like, you know, Ween only found out about it when they were like scrambling to find an artist to replace them. And Ween went to Landau and said, How the hell do you just, you know, take away my artist without, uh, without asking me? And Landau replied, Because it's none of your fucking business. <laughs> and Ween decked him. <laughs> right. And there was a brawl in the office, like famously. So, like, Ween was not, you know, temperamentally suited to be editor in chief. Uh, and, you know, he got replaced by Marv Wolfman, who was his best friend and, uh, you know, came in and Wolfman was just as bad at the job as Ween was. Conway comes in and Conway genuinely tried, right? Like Conway is 22 at this point when he comes in to do this. Uh, and he, you know, decides to, he, he, he gives it a try, uh, and will actually last the longest of the four of them on Conway's watch. X-Men comes out. The, the new X-Men are created by uh, Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum, right? Uh, this is the introduction of Nightcrawler and Storm and Colossus and all of these like important characters. And of course, Wolverine, who had been previously introduced in the Hulk, uh, you know, like becomes a main character. Um, the other things that are going on in like 75, 76, Kirby finishes his run at DC. He had a five-year contract at DC and it didn't really work, right? Like all of this amazing creative stuff had happened. He'd done the new gods and he'd done demon and commandy and all of that stuff over there. And none of them sold like they thought they would. And so DC is okay with, you know, Kirby giving another try coming back to Marvel. So they make a whole big deal. Stan's not here anymore. Uh, you know, he's off in California. Jerry reaches out to Jack and says, come back to, uh, you know, come back to Marvel. We'll give you like pretty much whatever you want to have. Uh, and so Kirby comes back, they give him Captain America, they give him Black Panther, which Don McGregor was still working on, but Don McGregor was so regularly late that Conway basically just fired him to make room for Kirby. So now McGregor is mad at Conway and a bunch of the other creative people at Marvel are mad at Conway for the way he handled that. Um, Howard the Duck has been introduced by Steve Gerber and um, Frank Brunner doing the art. And it's once again, crazy popular. Uh, and it is constantly pushing the content of like what they're allowed to actually put, right? It's, you know, it's, it's politically uh, kind of snarky. There is plenty of reference to drug use. There is plenty of reference to, you know, sex, weird sex with birds and that kind of thing. So, you know, uh, they're constantly fighting with Gerber and Bruner and Conway is trying to kind of like, uh, you know, control this. Um, 
Conway then fires Steve Englehart from the Avengers for being late all the time because he's missed so many issues uh, getting it done, right? And so a bunch of the creative people at Marvel, tired of being yelled at and pushed around by this 22, 23-year-old kid for this go-over-his-head-to-Stan and say, Stan, you've got to come back in the office and straighten some of this out. This kid is just a, a nightmare. We can't work with him. Uh, you know, and nothing's working here. Stan doesn't really do that. And finally, Conway just quits because he's tired of fighting with everybody and he goes over to DC. So they put Archie Goodwin <laughs> in, the, in, in the job basically because there's nobody left to do it. Archie doesn't want this job. He's just afraid that if he doesn't take the job, he'll get fired, <laughs> right? He doesn't, he doesn't feel like he can turn down a promotion, <laughs> you know, at this point. And he's not sure what's going to happen to the company because there's nobody else to take the job. So he takes over and, uh, you know, basically at least kind of like makes things a little quieter. Um, all of this time, right? Like Marvel's sales are going down and down and down year to year, month to month. Everything is looking poor. The company is definitely suffering from sales. Uh, they have uh, the men's magazine side of the business of magazine management. Um, realizes that their men's magazines are a pretty much now full-time porn and b not selling anything like what they used to be. So they don't want this anymore. They cut down, uh, they sell all of the remaining magazines they have directly to Chip Goodman, who starts a new company to publish them. Um, they shut down Stan's uh, magazine. Stan had created a comic called, uh, not a comic, but a regular uh, magazine, a monthly magazine called Celebrity Magazine. Um, that was basically just pictures of Stan Lee hanging out with famous people <laughs> for no other reason, right? There, there was like literally nothing else to it. So they canceled that, right? And shut it down. And the company, Magazine Management, officially no longer has any magazine. It's just managing Marvel, right? But they still call the company management uh, Magazine Management. Galton, once again, not knowing what anything is worth, uh, sells the TV rights to Spider-Man, the Incredible Hulk, and several other characters. Um, I believe a total of six characters that they had the rights to, to Universal. Uh, you know, to, to Universal's the studio for this. And all Marvel gets out of this is $12,500 for all six characters. Right? That's no, really, that's the number. That's what that they had, you know, what, what they were able to get for that. That's the equivalent today in today money of $58,000. Wow. What a, what a massive right? For that, Universal got six, the rights to six characters, which turned into two TV shows, right? Because both Spider Man and the Hulk went on to have successful TV shows. Marvel saw nothing from either of those, right? They just, they, they were utterly taken in this deal. They were just absolutely crushed in this business deal. Galton was terrible at this and just could not, you know, had had no estimation of what any of this stuff was worth. Somebody offered him, you know, some money and he said sure and took it. Not <laughs> judging what anybody should get for something like this, right? So they got Marvel got completely taken. Sales are down, severe financial difficulties. They're having a hard time kind of like making their payments on everything by, you know, in 1976 into 77. It looks like the company is going to go out of business. Um, Jim Shooter is now working there for a bit. And he talks about those days where, where he was like absolutely convinced the Christmas party in 1976, he was absolutely convinced they would never be, Marvel was going to go out of business within a few months. Um, they just, there was, there, there was nothing there. They weren't, they weren't able to, uh, to, to bring this in. What saved them 
in Shooter and several other people's opinion is Roy Thomas did a deal uh, that he worked out basically on his own when Archie was editor-in-chief. Roy had done the deal with the Robert E. Howard uh, license for Conan himself, and that had worked out great. He then had done a deal with the studio that did with Stanley Kubrick's people that did the 2001 movie and did Marvel did a adaptation comic of 2001, the movie that didn't sell that great, but it's, you know, they, they had a good license deal for it. They put out a couple of other things. Uh, Jack Kirby did some of the art. It broke even and uh, spun off machine man as a character. Uh, so, you know, they were fairly happy with that. So Roy tries one more time. He's heard about this little science fiction movie that's being made by a guy named George Lucas. <laughs> and he cuts a deal with George Lucas to get the comic book rights to this little movie called Star Wars. And the, the comics hit the stands just before Star Wars breaks, right? Like the first issue of Star Wars number one is out right before the Star Wars explosion happens. And the comics, the deal is fabulous compared to their sales. Once again, they have snookered everybody, right? Like they, they, it costs them next to nothing to get this license. And Star Wars becomes the biggest selling comic that they will have in the previous five years and for five years more. It just blows out the door and probably financially saves Marvel. There's, you know, you can, you can make a pretty strong argument that Marvel would not have survived without that. Um, that is such a success that Marvel kind of like recognizes that, wait a minute, this is in fact a business model. We should license more stuff and make comics out of it. We should have the comics business for a bunch of other things. In short order, within a year after Star Wars, we've got Godzilla. Uh, they do the Kiss comic book, right? Like they do the deal with them. In 1979, they start doing toy comics. They start with uh, Micronauts, Shogun Warriors, Rom the Space Knight, eventually G.I. Joe. All of these things like, you know, are, are basically inspired by and work on the same model. Obviously, they had to pay more. Uh, each time because, you know, the everybody saw how badly George Lucas got taken if, effectively. I mean, they didn't care. George Lucas is making ridiculous amounts of money anyway. I'm sure he barely noticed. But as a deal, the Star Wars deal was tremendously in Marvel's favor, right? So they kept going out and trying to get that deal over again, and they could never quite repeat the success. But most of the things they brought in were successful. They were making money, and these licensed comics uh, really brought Marvel out of their their sales slump in the seventies and kept them alive as a company. Interesting. Some of those of uh, even like Rom has Marvel like Canon at this point too. Yeah. Oh yeah. So is Godzilla. As far as I know, they're all officially oh. Canon. They're original, they're the material. I don't think anything's been officially like taken out of Canon that you're just not allowed to refer to right. them. Anymore, right. Like you can't call Rom by name or the micronauts by name, um, but they still have the rights to bug. Right. Cause they created bug. He wasn't a, he wasn't a toy, yep. you know? Um, so yeah, so most of those, you know, most of those characters, the, certainly the stories are all considered canon, even if they can't say the name Shogun Warriors anymore, right. right? Um, around that time, they're still trying out other stuff, right? Now that they've rebounded, right? Now that it's 78, 79, and Star Wars has literally saved their bacon, um, they start trying a couple of other things. They start a big magazine push again, right? They start doing, uh, magazine format comics like Rampaging Hulk and uh, the Deadly Hands of Kung Fu and things like that to try to make a, you know, get a sale in the, in the bookstore magazine market. They also uh, start making uh, more characters aimed at uh, female fans again, the same way that 
they had back in the 40s with, you know, Namora and Sun Girl and Golden Girl. Marvel tries it again 35 years later, 30 years later, with, uh, you know, distaff versions of many of their popular characters, right? There is There, there are rumors floating around uh, at different times that DC intends to uh, create characters that would be kind of like taking, you know, uh, taking smacks at, at, at Marvel by like, you know, licensing, cre- creating, trademarking a character with a name, a female character with a name similar, similar to one of their male characters, right? And nobody can ever confirm that this rumor is true. Nobody ever like finds anyone who can actually say, oh yes, I was working on that. But just to be safe, Marvel creates uh, Spider-Woman, the She-Hulk, and Ms. Marvel over the course of about two years uh, as, a, as an effort to uh, kind of protect those names and also incidentally try to reach out to a larger female percentage of their audience. Um, none of them will succeed in doing that. The comics themselves will kind of like succeed and fail moderately. You know, the, pretty much all of those characters are still around, uh, but none of them have really been a success until Ms. Marvel became Captain Marvel just in the last few years. We'll talk about her considerably in the future. Um, the other thing that they tried to do is they cut a deal um, with a record producer named John Casablancas, uh, who is trying to get a comic book character like made that he will um, like cross promote, right? Like there would be a real actress playing the person who would go out and perform as a musical artist and then also have a comic book line. And that completely fails uh, as a project, but the leftover of that basically turns into Dazzler. Right. Right, like the total, the, you know, like what what the stuff that they created originally to try to create this kind of, you know, like disco superhero with John Casablancas, uh, they still have all the material when that deal falls through. So they decide to go ahead and turn that into Dazzler, and Dazzler is a you know modest success. Um, but Archie Goodwin at this point has been, you know, kind of like trying to manage being the editor in chief for a couple of years. Uh, almost two years, and he's miserable. He hates it. He does not want to be the boss. He's bad at being the boss. He can't actually discipline anybody. They're all his friends. He's way too soft-hearted. And finally, um, Galton comes in and says, okay, we we agree. You look you look too sad coming in every day, right? <laughs> Please step down again and just become a writer and editor uh, for us. And we're going to put this guy in charge, and this guy is Jim Shooter. And Jim Shooter has kind of made himself uh, into like a Roy Thomas-like role, right? He has come on. He started as a teenager working for DC. He worked for Mort Weisinger the same way that Roy was supposed to, that Roy only lasted for like eight days. And he was writing superhero comics when he was 14 years old. He was writing The Legion of Superheroes for DC. So he's been in comics for 15 years right at this point, and he's not even 30 yet, right? Um, he has, you know, moved over from DC to Marvel and kind of insinuated himself in the editorial situation. He became Archie's second in command and tried very hard to kind of like be the, you know, the grown up in the room, right? In a company that was largely run by some fairly unprofessional people, uh, he was going to be the professional one and he was going to kind of like whip them into shape. So he becomes the editor-in-chief. He becomes kind of the designated adult of the company, just as we're going into the 1980s. He hires a very good editorial staff. Um, 
to, you know, we'll talk about Shooter's management style eventually, but to his credit, the people he brings in to be the new editors to start replacing some of these, these guys are very good. He hires Roger Stern. He hires Mark Gruenwald. He hires Ralph Macchio. He hires uh, Bob Hall. So these are some, you know, like professional people. He also, when he comes in and starts looking at the actual like financials of Marvel, it re- realizes that uh, there's a, there's something is going on with the money here for this, right? That there's a, the situation is going on and he starts analyzing uh, and, and doing a, uh, you know, doing a study of the books and realizes that John Verporten, who had been the business manager for the company and had just recently died, uh, had in fact been kind of like running, not really a scam because he personally wasn't making any money off of it, but was kind of like running a deal for several of the freelancers at Marvel who would bring stuff. He would like hire multiple people to officially do the same, what was, what was listed in the books as the same job. Right. And allow people to kind of like voucher in advance to get paid in advance for titles they had not done yet in the future. It was in order to kind of like help some of the freelancers who, you know, like would be having a tough time, like making their own rent or something like that. He would basically pay them in advance for work and hide it in the books. Hmm. And it was Shooter who revealed that basically to Cadence, to their management and said, you know, I don't want to, you know, speak ill of the dead. And it's clear that Verputin himself hadn't made any money off of it. But a bunch of our writers have gotten, and a bunch of our artists have gotten paid in advance for work that, you know, we're not entirely certain they all did, right? And they certainly got paid way faster than they were supposed to be uh, in order to make sure they made rent that month, you know? And he kind of like comes in and he stops that. He's like, we're not, you know, pre-vouchering can't happen anymore. We're not going to do any of this stuff. And of course, immediately, all of the freelancers who had been taking advantage of that deal uh, now see Jim Shooter as the bad guy, right? right? He's yeah. the cop who came in and kind of, you know, shut them down, right? Now, at the same time, the Copyright Act of 1976 has been passed. And in 1978, it's going into, uh, it, it goes into, you know, becomes a law, right? It was written in 76, becomes a law in 1978. So in 79, Shooter is under pressure from management to make sure that Marvel is in compliance with the Copyright Act. So all of the new contracts that need to go out from that point on have been rewritten to match the Copyright Act rules um, about the uh, rights to uh, what happens to comic book art, uh, you know, and a bunch of like, you know, who, who owns what and what rates people are getting paid for stuff. And these contracts, the deals in them are way more onerous for freelancers than they used to be. And again, it's Shooter who's handing them out, right? Like he didn't write them, but it's him handing them out. So he is now officially the bad guy. Neil Adams is trying to form a union of comic book freelancers because it's going to be called the Comics Creators Guild. And he is putting out all kinds of stuff uh, about how miserable Marvel and DC are as places to work and that if we unionize all of the comic book creators for this, we can get a much better, much sweeter deal uh, and just work fabulously. Um, there's the, the battle is very kind of contentious, right? People are still meeting in Roy Thomas's apartment to have these meetings, you know, that like First Friday thing is still going on and it's all people are talking about on First Fridays, right? Um, Englehart, uh, Gerber, Frank Bruner, they are all with Neil Adams. They're ready to burn the institutions down, right? They're like, you know, 
power to the people. Uh, we should all be running our own operations with no thought of how they're actually going to do that. <laughs> Thomas and Gruenwald, for example, both have seen the books, right? They're, they're both, you know, yes, they're creative, but they've been management. They know how little money Marvel is making. Right, they know what the realistic numbers are. They know there's nobody. Yeah, okay, Stanley is making more than he probably should, uh, etc. But you know, there's no the, the the deals that the artists are working for are not that bad. There's no hidden resource of money, and so they're kind of like more cautious. We don't want to put these guys out of business, you know. And if we, these ridiculous demands that Neil Adams, I mean Neil Adams' numbers that he's throwing around are just ludicrous, right? He wants to increase per page rates twenty times. You know, we should all get paid 20 times as much per page as we did before, <laughs> you know? And Thomas is like, by who? Who is going to pay us this money, right? Like, who has this money to pay us? Everybody sees Jim Shooter as representing management. If he's no longer, like, considered a creative by the rest of the creatives anymore, right? They don't, they, he is definitely 100% on the other side. They all see him as a bad guy. Then we've talked about, if you go listen to the DC history, this is when the DC implosion happens. Sales for all of DC's new titles go into the toilet. DC is in the as bad financial trouble as Marvel was two or three years before that they got saved by Star Wars is now happening to DC. DC has no money left. They're cutting comics right and left. They're cutting their line in half. And suddenly Jim Shooter has a line of freelancers out the door at Marvel, people looking for work, totally willing to sign what they had just said was such a terrible contract because there's nothing left. DC isn't hiring. Right. So at this point, Jim Shooter's got, you know, this whole collection of uh, freelancers uh, who have come from DC uh, realizing that Marvel is pretty much the last place that they can get, you know, like a real contract that uh, will pay them anywhere close to uh, what they have been expecting for the last uh, few years. And, uh, you know, even though they are generally unhappy with the set of contracts that have been created, they are pretty much stuck. It's the one kind of like, you know, customer left for them to go. So, right. He's got them by the balls. Pretty much at that point. So, and as much as everybody, you know, loves to beat up Jim Shooter, there are, you know, a million stories uh, about what a terrible boss he was. This, at this point, you have to admit that he has kind of like straightened out the company uh operationally right they stop people stop missing deadlines uh people are you know like held to a standard of professionalism for turning things in uh that they had not been basically since roy thomas was in charge and a bunch of new people come on board and start putting out uh you know some very impressive work right frank miller starts working for marvel at this point in 1979 uh, John Byrne replaces Dave Cockrum on the X-Men and X-Men goes to like crazy new heights. Uh, and, you know, in this era is when they do the whole original Dark Phoenix stories. Um, there's a writer uh, about comics. His name is R. Fiore and he's been in a bunch of magazine and he talks about, uh, you know, like the, the awfulness of, of Shooter and the, the, to quote him in one of his pieces, he says, it's really easy to get people to say nasty things about Jim Shooter. In answering all of the dark legends that surround him, he begins to sound like Alice Cooper denying rumors that he bit the heads off of chickens on stage. <laughs> He's kind of like Captain Bly. You hear stories about him both ways, but the fact remains his crew did strand him at sea in a rowboat. <laughs> yeah. 
So, you know, that's the it, you you don't wind up with a reputation like Shooter had, you know, by accident, right? That's not just people being mean to you in public. He clearly was, you know, for a lot of people a nightmare to work with. And even though Marvel uh, you know, had kind of benefited in the at the end of the 70s and early 80s from the DC implosion, when DC got its act back together three or four years later, a bunch of these people had had enough of him and went back to DC, right? Like at the same time that, uh, you know, uh, Marvel is kind of like retaking the lead uh, in in sales. Um, that's when, for example, uh, Marv Wolfman and George Perez go to DC to create Teen Titans, right? Because they just can't stand dealing with Jim Shooter sure. anymore. So let's, let's Jim um, Thomas, Thomas goes there, Denny O'Neill, Mike Carlin, Doug Mensch, all of these people basically leave Marvel for DC because they couldn't stand Shooter. Right. Let's talk about Shooter for a little bit, though, because we keep saying he's a, a crappy boss. What do the stories say? Is he just like... Because a lot of these we've talked about so far, a lot of these writers were not um, the most judicious people. Right. Um, so was it? are the stories just that he was... A hard ass about deadlines, or was he also like a that's, jerk? That's clearly part of it, right? Mm -hmm. Like that he was set up. You know, he, his his job was to come in and be the guy everybody hated and make everybody do things on time, right? Okay. That part is probably legit. On the other hand, he was also kind of famous for basically having very strong opinions about how stories got told. Ah. And for criticizing people's uh, work, kind of like after the fact, usually at a point where it was too late to do something easy to fix it. Right, like he would come into the 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 process of like getting stories out very late in the process, and was considered to be very kind of like arbitrary about his problems. Gotcha. Right. Um, in some cases, once again, he makes a pretty powerful argument for what he did. Right, like for the reasons that he did. For example, uh, the Dark Phoenix right. story. Right, like famously, the the original script by Claremont and Byrne for this, she lives at the end. Right, she just has her powers taken away. Uh, and, you know, returns to being a normal person and, like, goes back to, you know, like, life in in New York, right? Uh, you know, back on Earth as an ordinary person. And Jim Shooter came to that very late in the process and said, hang on just a second, Phoenix just killed an entire planet, right? She made a sun go nova, and, like, a, you know, billions of asparagus people just died. <laughs> you know, she needs to be punished for that, right? Like, we can't just say, oh, too bad it was, you know, uh, you you were out of control at the time mm -hmm. or whatever, right? There needs to be some kind of like dramatic uh, closure to the story, yeah. and basically forced Claremont and Byrne uh, to you know go back and rewrite the story mm -hmm. uh, at you know once again very late in the process. So probably for the better in that case because uh, her dying is you know is very powerful, powerful right? Exactly, and if, and in the end was also undone the way that like Byrne wanted to have it undone the whole time anyway, right? right? Like when Byrne brings her back the first time, uh, it's you know the whole premise of Dark Phoenix and Jean Grey are two entirely different beings, right? Like that the real Jean Grey is still at the bottom of the ocean, uh, and the creature that's been pretending to be you know Jean Grey for the last four years or whatever in the comics is a completely different person and that or completely different thing basically and that's what's responsible for all those deaths so if we get rid of her uh you know get rid of it then she is blameless and can come back to being a hero right um shooter was having none of that at the time right he wouldn't let it wasn't until after shooter left that burn was able to do that story that led into x-factor so right right okay cool yeah i just wanted to we're probably not gonna get another chance to talk about uh jim shooter in 
Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, Marvel is now, it's the early 80s. Marvel is now making money. Marvel has figured out how to make money with licenses. Uh, Star Wars basically taught them a lot, right? So they do uh, G.I. Joe. They make a deal with Hasbro, and that goes on to be, uh, you know, an enormous success for them. Uh, they start doing animation shows. Instead of just licensing stuff out, they literally set up a company called Marvel Productions to handle their own animation. So the first two of those that come out come out in 1981, and that's uh, The Incredible Hulk and Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends. That's the, the Iceman and Firestar uh, series. Uh, Mike Hobson comes on as the new publisher at this point to kind of like be the business person. And he sees, unlike most of the publishers that have been running the company in the days since Stan Lee has left, he sees plenty of profit potential in comics themselves because he sees how the market is changing, right? And so he is the one who uh, kind of like really goes out of his way to address and make contact with this new wave of retailers that are being formed for direct sales only, like for, for you know, shops that are dedicated only to selling comic books or to selling comics and other hobby stuff, right? But like that are part of like a retail uh, uh, world that comics had never been in before. And it's Hobson who really does the the, the bulk of the early work setting all of that up. Um, he's willing to, uh, you know, to, to create products that are comic store only, right? Marvel Fanfare is the first comic book that is sold only in comic retailers. Wow. It doesn't go to newsstands. It doesn't go to grocery stores. It doesn't go, you know, any other place. It's literally just for comic shops in support of what it is that they're doing, right? Um, he creates the new graphic novel format right at this point uh death of captain marvel is the first it's not the first graphic novel but it's the first one done under the format that we will kind of like come to understand of the way that novels are done right it's like pretty cool. I, the entire process i you know when i think back on comics i think of like comic stores as kind of coming to uh head in like the 70s but i guess that's not really right Really the, the first of them appear in the mid 70s but it doesn't become kind of like a market that the comics publishers can rely on until about 81 82 okay. that's really at the point that there are enough of them out there that it's worth spending the time to kind of you know like address them as a group right to see that this is a business model that actually works hmm. um a lot of the early shops a lot of the early uh, stores that were you know that handled comics that sort that way for them were like head shops right. and stuff right? right like the you know it's like they would sell comic books and they would also sell you know posters and t-shirts and bongs and whatever else you know like the, there were counterculture shops right kind of thing so makes sense so at this point it's now 1983 and the people at Marvel, of course, are still not getting along with Cadence, with the company, you know, like the, the corporation that owns them. Um, and Hobson, once again, has, has sees how much money potential there actually is in this. And so he and Jim Galton, who is currently the president at Marvel, try to buy out Marvel from Cadence. Um, they're like, well, you know, we'll put together an offer. Then you clearly don't want to run the company. You do, you're not interested in our product line. Why don't you just sell it to us and we'll run it the way that we think it should be run? And uh, Cadence considers the amount of money that they are, they're offered and instead says, no, I'm not, you know, that's not enough. We want you to pay more. The lead investor in Cadence uh, is upset 
that he he's not a majority owner, right? Like he's he's the he he's he's the lead investor, but he's still a minority. Everybody else kind of you know can outvote him, right? And he is so angry that Cadence doesn't take this deal uh, that he decides to put his share of the company up for sale. Hmm. And says, "Well, I'm just getting rid of mine. It's Cadence clearly doesn't know what they're doing, and I don't, you know, support them anymore. So I am just putting all of my stock up for sale. Cadence, like their stock price, immediately plummeted. Right, like as soon as like their top investor announced that he no longer had any faith in Cadence's management, the stock went through the, you know, went into the toilet. Um, and then Cadence promptly sued Mario Gabelli, the lead investor, for saying that sort of thing in public." Right, so now there's a whole lawsuit going on uh, between all of like Cadence's management and their top shareholders that Marvel has no part of. Right, like this is all going on over their heads. Um, but eventually, this is going to lead to Cadence getting like liquidated and basically sold for parts. But it's going to take several years of them fighting with each other over you know above Marvel's head uh, to uh, you know before that actually winds up getting resolved. Um, in the meantime, Hobson and uh, Galton and Jim Shooter come up with another plan. And once again, they go back to kind of like the well, right? They had a great relationship with Hasbro over the last couple of years making G.I. Joe. So they turn to Mattel and say, we're going to, you know, we, we want Mattel to do a line. I mean, you know, Mattel was interested in this and doing a line of toys that were specifically the Marvel characters themselves, that they would be a, a superhero toy set. And as part of that toy set, uh, Jim Shooter promised to write a series, a year-long series, that would feature the characters who are in the toy set, right? It would be like a storyline that kids could like play out with their toys, basically. There'd be a set of heroes and a set of villains, and they were fighting these battles on an alien planet, right? They'd all been abducted uh, from Earth by this super powerful alien who just wanted to see them fight each other on a on an alien world, uh, in order to understand humanity, and that is, of course, what turned into Secret Wars. Uh, Secret Wars, for what it's worth, I mean, it invented a brand new way of like comic book storytelling that we're still stuck with for you know thirty five years later, right? It invented the summer event. Right. There had never been one before. This is a brand new idea. It was a limited series that, you know, like spanned the the length of the Marvel, you know, line basically and crossed over with all of their individual titles. So if you wanted to know everything that was happening, everything that had happened in in Secret War, you had to buy everybody's title individually like to get all of the stories, right? So it was like it designed to kind of like introduce people to the rest of the line, right? Like if you were only an X-Men fan, well, you know, the X-Men are in Secret Wars. And if you want to know what's going on with them, you pre pretty much are going to have to buy a couple of issues of Avengers and Spider-Man and a couple other things to understand what's going on, right? Um, this is a ludicrously impressive success. Whatever anybody may think of the story, and I actually think the first Secret Wars is not bad. It's fun. It's dumb, but it's fun. Um, Knowing that it uh, was for the toy company and that the Beyonder is basically the proxy for the children. Uh, for yeah. the kid, right? In the in their in their sandbox, yeah. right? Exactly. That's exactly that actually kind of makes it. me I didn't know that before. That kind of makes it cooler, the sort of meta nature of that story. Yeah. Right. So I mean, I, like I said, I'm I'm actually kind of fond of that one. It makes yeah. sense. It's it's like the greatest story for an eight year old ever told. Right? Yeah, no, you know, right? It doesn't make the second one any less bad, but <laughs> no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't solve, and it doesn't deal with all of the problems that, like, you know, Secret War led to. But I mean, Secret Wars sold out crazily, 
It was incredibly successful. It the comic line itself, I think Marvel was happier with the comic than Mattel really was with the toys, right? Like the toys were okay. They sold decently, but they were never like spectacular. By Marvel's standards, the amount of money that Secret Wars brought in, um, you know, once again kind of like changed it, it, it was a it was a company changing amount of cash, right? That like actually like flowed in at that point. So of course there was a sequel. Now here's part of the problem. Jim Shooter wrote Secret mm-hmm. War. The first both of them actually. And for all of the people who didn't like Jim Shooter coming along to tell them how to do superhero stories, because every Jim Shooter story was aimed at that eight-year-old audience, right? They felt that he was like dumbing down their comics and he was kind of, you know, like making them be really obvious. You couldn't do anything subtle in the comics because Jim Shooter was aiming at kids. The amount of success that Shooter had with Secret Wars just made him even more convinced he was right, (laughs) right? Like, you can't argue with me. I just sold a billion dollars worth of comics, (laughs) you know? Like, why can't the rest of you write more comics like that? Then everything would sell like Secret Wars. (laughs) It suddenly becomes his argument, oh, right? And it's a hard argument to fight, right? Like when your boss has just had the most phenomenal success, it's kind of tough to tell him that he's wrong, right? That he's doing things. He sounds wrong. like he would be infuriating. Um, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, you know, there, a sequel obviously comes along. They've invented a new way of doing things. So in 1985, in the summer, we do Secret Wars 2, uh, which was considerably less successful and basically mocked for the most part for its storyline and certainly did kind of like undercut Shooter's own authority of being able to say, you know, I am the greatest comic book writer in the world uh, when everybody was kind of like, well, that was, a, you know, that was kind of a piece of junk. So, you know, what's, a, what's up with that? Um, but still sold extremely well nobody was ever you know kind of like talked out of of doing summer crossovers right like i mean this just kind of like set in stone that this was how comics were going to be sold uh so while all that is going on that's 84 and 85 in early 1986 the cadence fight between their stock owners right between the 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 actual like management of the company and the top stockholders basically ends in Cadence stripping its super corporation down for parts, right? It splits each piece of the corporation off and sells each piece separately to six or eight different companies wind up buying pieces of what had been Cadence. The part that was Marvel, the part that included Marvel was bought by New World Pictures. And New World Pictures was kind of like the first movie studio to fully kind of embrace the idea of like, oh, if we own a comic book company, if we own this IP, we can, we we don't have to pay a third party to get things done, right? Like we suddenly we have all of these stories and all of these characters that we straight up own, right? We'll just hire a bunch of writers and, you know, write up a bunch of scripts and make a bunch of movies the way we would did anyway. And we've cut a whole chunk out of the process out of actually like finding, you know, writers to create care of finding characters. Um, and so New World goes into the Marvel movie making business, you know, years before the version that will be successful, right? The problem is, of course, that New World is uh, perilously short on money and doesn't really understand the Marvel characters, right? It still doesn't understand how to translate characters into the movies. Right. You've got the 1989 Punisher. That's New World. You've got the 1990 Captain America movie Ugh. with uh, Matt Salinger. Uh, they make three TV movies about the Incredible Hulk of varying quality. I mean, I'll you know I'll I'll, I'll defend one and a half of those myself, where it is actually being pretty okay. fun. 
Um, the Hulk versus Thor is a riot. Hulk versus uh, Daredevil is kind of ha has fun parts in it anyway. Um, mostly, um, what's his name? Uh, John Reese Davis is the Kingpin. Is mm. actually hilarious. Um, so there's like some stuff in it, but I mean, it's still it's cheap looking. It's clearly aimed at kids. It doesn't take the characters seriously. Uh, and it's largely rejected by Marvel fans. None of these movies make any money, uh, and none of them are very much are, are, are particularly uh, well thought of critically. At the same time, Lucasfilm is also still doing its deal with with Marvel and comes back to them to say, okay, you know, like at long last, we're going to finally make Howard the Duck. And if Howard the Duck had come out seven or eight years earlier, when Howard the Duck was in fact actually the biggest thing in comics, things might have been a bit different. Uh, but the combination of the fact that like Howard the Duck was kind of past his date of being funny, and a lot of people at Lucasfilm once again did not understand the character, Howard the Duck, despite being incredibly expensive to make, was also a bomb. And famously so, and got a lot of people at Lucasfilm fired. Um, so suddenly now, you know, we're all excited that New World Pictures has bought us and we're in the movie making business. By three or four years into that, you know, people were had kind of like thrown up their hands and said, you know what, making movies about superheroes just doesn't work. <laughs> you know, this is just not a thing. So maybe we should, uh, you know, try to find so something how else. How Duck on. feels like a really weird one. It's always felt like, how did that happen? Or is that like a, a huge topic in and of itself? It's a pretty big topic. We should probably do a Steve Gerber episode at some point. The short answer is, you know, it kind of, it captured kind of like a, a you know, zeitgeist of the late 70s and a particular kind of humor and a particular kind of, you know, that was definitely kind of tied to, uh, you know, early Saturday Night Live and that sort of thing, right? Like it was a very kind of urban sensibility, a very political sensibility. And... It had Gerber had fought with D, with uh, Marvel and left Marvel by that point, so the original creator wasn't there to inspire it. Even though he did actually come in to try to work on the movie separately, um, he hadn't been writing it for a couple of years at that point, and nobody else at Marvel really seemed to get it. Other efforts to like you know uh, to have other people write Howard the Duck never really worked, you know, and. It took so long to get the Howard the Duck movie made that by the time it did come out, people had kind of forgotten Howard ever, ever existed, right? Like he wasn't popular right. anymore. So it was, you know, people were, were like learning about him again for the first time, right? Like the hipster crowd didn't care. And the mass market crowd were just like, it's a giant talking duck who is, you know, sleeping with human women. I don't really understand why I'm supposed to be into this. You know, none of this makes right. any sense. So also, what was the third Hulk movie? Um, the She-Hulk, oh, okay. the She-Hulk she one, and that one yeah. is bad. That's pretty bad. Yeah, Good, I'll put it on my uh, I'll put it on my to watch list. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so we're making movies. Uh, what happens next now that all these movies are not good? Shooter Shooter is still, you know, kind of like being a tyrant in the office, right? Like he's still, you know, arguing with people and fighting with people all the time, trying to get people to redo their stuff uh, is just kind of, you know, like hated by pretty much everybody. At this point, he then starts fighting not just with his creative staff, but he starts fighting with his sales staff. Um, Carol Kalish has, uh, you know, kind of come up through the system as uh, Hobson's you know, sidekick and has kind of like taken over 
Marvel's relationship with retail by 1986 or so. And she has a bunch of opinions about how things should be done, uh, you know, and Hob has Hobson's support, whereas Shooter does not care for like the decisions. He doesn't want to see decisions being made by the sales department, right? He's kind of like, no, editorial decides what our comics look like, uh, you know, and what's actually in them. And we're not interested in listening to our sales department. Um, at the same time, Kalish's top sales guy, her top, you know, actual person making the phone calls in her office is a guy named Peter David. And Peter David also really wants to write comics. And so he has submitted a bunch of comics, you know, it's like he, he's, he's a sales guy, you know, and uh, comes in every day to do his nine to five, and then is writing comic book scripts on the weekends. And he sells some of his stuff, he convinces Jim Owsley, uh, who was the Spider-Man editor at the time, that he's got some pretty good stories, and Owsley decides to buy them. And a bunch of other people in the company are suddenly like, hang on a second, he's a sales guy. Right, it's his job to get on the phone and sell our comics, and you're letting him like have one of Marvel's titles. How do we know he's not going to just sell his stuff? Right, like isn't that a conflict of interest to say that like uh, you know uh, the guy who is out there selling our things actually has an, an interest in the sales of his own title? Uh, and it turns into a controversy that Jim Shooter basically uh, spills oil all over. Right, makes much worse than it needed to be. Uh, you know, he tries to, he tells Owsley to, uh, to, to fire David, uh, just because people have complained about it. Owsley refuses, uh, and a whole bunch more unnecessary drama happens. Um, and David eventually just kind of like ups and leaves off to DC and becomes an enormously popular writer over at DC. Peter David is fantastic. Yeah. And eventually he'll come back, right? Like, I mean, it's, you know, no, no hard feelings when he comes back to do the Hulk uh, with McFarlane and that sort of thing. Everybody's delighted to have him back. But, uh, you know, his, his initial steps into the industry were very kind of controversial at the time for, for what is basically a fairly ridiculous and childish reason. Yeah. Right. Like you, you had no problem with this guy selling your comics up until the day suddenly he's got his name in a comic and then suddenly now it's a problem. Right. Yeah. So. Um, Shooter, meanwhile, has plenty of new ideas about what he wants to do, and his uh, first uh, or his his next thing that he tries after this is to do the new universe. Is to say that you know, like Marvel is super complicated at this point. We should, you know, it's it's very hard for people to get on board. They're kind of seeing the same problems that DC was seeing before Crisis, right? It's like the biggest complaints that we get is these characters have these long histories. It's hard to come on board in the middle of a comic. You know, if you if you have a story that covers multiple issues, new readers complain because they don't know where it started and they don't understand what's going on. And what if we just started over, right? And his original idea, some people have said, was that he was going to take a bunch of the Marvel characters and uh, kill them off and replace them with new people wearing the costumes. And to a certain extent, that did kind of eventually happen, right? Because we eventually we got Thunderstrike instead of Thor, and we got uh, you know. But the, the 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 version of that that was originally kind of like rumored was that the original guy was also going to go away, right? Instead of just like a second person, you know, a similar character, right? Mm -hmm. um, Steve Rogers was going to die as opposed to Steve Rogers is just going to leave being Captain America for a while, you know, that kind of thing. 
Mm -hmm. um, instead, he is convinced that what we should do is just start over the same way that Stan and Jack did and just create a brand new universe that is even more realistic than the Marvel one was in you know 1961, right? We're going to shake everybody up again uh, by telling these stories that are literally set in the world outside today and they're going to be, you know, uh, uh, super realistic and uh, super, you know, these flawed characters. Nobody's going to wear costumes. It's it's not going to be like the traditions of superheroes. Of course, most of the writers that he hires are not on board with this plan, right? And so many of the titles that they wind up publishing early on don't even kind of like live up to what Shooter wanted out of it. And most of them really aren't good. Uh, and so there's, you know, the the new universe will basically last for two years, almost three years before it is largely gone away. It just it's doesn't so, fly. It's so weird how uh, going through these histories, someone tries this basically every five, six years now. Um, <laughs> we're going to create a new, grittier, more realistic, less continuity universe. And it it, right. it, it rarely works. No, because it's, you know, the, the, the continuity is actually what people like, right? right. Or more people like. The, the effort to chase down these, like, you know, mythical or at least, you know, unidentified brand new readers to bring them in uh, frequently comes at the cost of annoying the old readers, right? Who were your reliable sales to start out with. Right. And rarely have we ever found a means where you bring in enough new people to replace the old ones that you lose, right? So. Yep. Um, but this new generation of artists that comes in, like one of the things that New Universe does is give a bunch of opportunities to a bunch of brand new young artists, right? Like Arthur Adams comes in first, and then uh, McFarlane, Jim Lee, Wills Protasio, Rob Liefeld, right? None of these kids works on, work on site. None of them come to work in the bullpen or anything. They all work from their home studios. They're all over the country. None of them even live near New York City, right? they all have this kind of like similar style. I mean, obviously there's enormous differences between them, but they all are definitely kind of like, uh, uh, have these kind of like active action styles with a lot of like cross hatching, a lot of like dark black inking and everything. They all kind of have this, you know, the, 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 you can see that they're all from a school, right? And they are all now old enough, you know, like the kids basically this generation like grew up hearing about how Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko had been mistreated, right? They knew all along, you know, if they're, if you're 25 in 1987, you were born when Jack Kirby first started fighting with Marvel, right? You know, so I mean, it's, it's happened your entire life. So they have very little expectation of loyalty, right? They have very little expectation that Marvel is in any way going to take care of them uh, or anything. And they're very, you know, they're, they're pretty much going to work for the, whoever pays them the best. Right. right. Um, and they are completely prepared to like take no shit from management. Right. Like as a, as, as a group, basically they are just uninterested in uh, you know, kind of like becoming part of the company. Uh, McFarland in particular, Tom McFarland in particular actively disrespects in public, the, the writing of comics, right. Writing doesn't matter. Writing just gives me cool characters to draw, you know? So for him, the act of like creating a comic book is like it's it's the artist first and then the writer just comes in to explain how all of the panels connect to each other but the interesting thing are all the panels right are all the individual cool poses and all of this stuff uh liefeld is the same way liefeld famously can't keep track of continuity from one issue to another he just doesn't care right he just wants everything to look cool um 
the collector's market embraces these guys hugely at the time, right? Like each new one of these guys that comes on, their titles are smash, you know, successes, even though they're being critically uh, bombed on, you know, for, for the terrible writing, right? Because the the immediate cash that they're getting from the, the sales of these way outweighs any kind of like long-term concerns for the health of a character or for a franchise. In 1987, Jim Shooter does a TV interview, a special 25th anniversary of Marvel uh, TV interview with Stan, right? He gets Stan in a studio and they talk about the history of Marvel and they talk about all of this stuff. Uh, and, and Stan gets to tell his, you know, version of, of everything in which basically he single-handedly created everything. <laughs> uh, Jack Kirby is completely not mentioned in the 25th anniversary uh, interview. Steve Ditko, completely not mentioned. I don't believe his name ever even comes up in the, in, in the 1987 interview. Um, it's just basically all Stan all the time. Uh, and as soon as that is broadcast, suddenly, once again, everybody has a new thing to be mad. It's not even Stan they're mad at at this point, because Stan you know, is like so far out of the business. But Jim Shooter is sitting there right on stage listening to all of this and mm-hmm. asking him more questions and never once bringing up anybody else who was involved in it, right? And so Shooter just gets slammed in the press for this awful interview. And for the first time, pretty much ever, he apologizes in public. Right. He comes out and says, that was wrong. I, you know, was like so caught up in talking to my hero, Stanley, et cetera, that uh, I just kind of wasn't paying attention. Right. Like I didn't realize the, the, like how bad this was coming across. This is at that point, the last straw. Right. At this point now, uh, so many people have left Marvel because shooters so difficult to get along with. Uh, John Byrne has moved over to DC to do, you know, leaving behind their best-selling titles so that he can go do Superman at DC without any kind of like editorial interference. Um, it's Jim Shooter is actively costing the company sales and valuable workers, right? Between McFarlane making fun of him all the time and John Byrne leaving, those are kind of like the last straws. And in April of 1987, Jim Shooter finally gets canned, uh, is, is removed as the editor-in-chief and like an era of Marvel really comes to an end with him. Well, well, uh, I think that's where we're going to hold off uh, and we'll finish up the History of Marvel uh, next time. Sounds good. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, I've been Steve Tasker. And I'm Darren Watts. Have a good night.